pulled out. This is an opportunity for us to, uh, to pick those up. Um, if something comes to mind as we go along, we'll uh, also collect them at the end. And if you uh, missed out collecting a uh, communion cup on your way in, uh, then uh, now's the opportunity to, to get those. We'll uh, grab some of those as well. There's some out the back doors and some over here. Just a reminder that uh, October, as we, we mentioned at the very beginning, is our month of hospitality. And I hope that's uh, going well for everybody. That doesn't mean you buy yourself a cup of coffee or that extra Danish or uh, go out for pizza by yourself. Uh, it means you find somebody, uh, somebody you don't usually eat with or walk with or whatever it is to uh, get to know and spend some some time with. I really uh, view our month of hospitality as kind of, it's about six months from March, and March is where we have Harmony Sunday, and I view a correlation between the two, in that each March we have the, you know, um, Harmony Sunday, we celebrate diversity at, at Lawson Road in whatever shape and form, and and, and that's a great thing to do. With our month of hospitality, we have the opportunity to sort of put some legs on that. Okay? So halfway through the year, just another reminder to say, hey, there are still barriers right? that if we're not careful can start creeping up again. Yeah? And so by being intentional in this month, we get to um, know people that are different from ourselves, younger than ourselves, older than ourselves, uh, from other parts of the country to ourselves, different cultural backgrounds to ourselves. And, uh, and so that's, uh, uh, I, I think it's an important aspect of it, that we don't just celebrate who we are on a Sunday morning, although I think that's important to celebrate because not every church is like this, but also that we do something to say it's not just who we are on Sunday morning that's important, it's who we are as a, as a body of Christ uh, outside of our time sitting in the same room. So uh, I, I do view it as something, uh, our month of hospitality, um, um, for many reasons, but as one of those reasons is sort of the um, correlating with Harmony Sunday. Also, uh, this afternoon... After Bible class, the teens will be having pizza downstairs. If you're not a teen, you can't pretend to be a teen or say you feel like a teen or you woke up this morning and you were just feeling good. There'll be pizza for the teens and their sponsors. <laughs> um, <coughs> also, and then after that, we're going out to the corn maze. So uh, looking forward to a good afternoon of activities there and glad to have all our teens along and their families. We are, I don't know if it's starting a new series, continuing a series, but uh, we're going, last week we read the, the book of Galatians and, uh, as our sermon. So something a little, a little different. Um, nobody came up to me afterwards and said, hey, can we do you know, Psalms next week? That was really good. Um, but uh, I hope that you, you enjoyed that. 
One of the things that Paul always does when he begins a letter is he says hi to the church that he's writing to. And, uh, and so I'd like to give each of us just an opportunity to say good morning to the person, someone around you, okay? Just, okay? <laughs> If you're at home, say good morning to the person next to you or type it into the, into the comment section there. I, I've been told that some people talk in, in words, some people talk in sentences, and others talk in paragraphs. Um, so uh, we apparently have a few paragraph speakers here, but uh, that's, that's okay. God loves, God loves you all. Um, when you say good morning to someone... What are you saying? Is it a question? Is it a statement? It is a good morning. Just announce it. Or is it sort of like a, a wish? I wish you a good morning. <laughs> Afternoon will take care of itself. But morning, I want to wish you a good morning. What, what are we doing when we say... Good morning to someone. It, perhaps we're not, we don't even care what the words are, right? We're just breaking the ice in the conversation. So instead of saying, I want to talk to you, <laughs> how was the ride over here? We say, good morning. Did you run into any traffic? Maybe that's all it is, a way of getting a conversation started, and we don't mean any more than that. Whatever it is, we say good morning a lot, don't we? And uh, it's not a complete sentence, but there's still sort of some feeling that goes with it. In the letter that Paul writes to the churches of Galatia, Paul, in this instance, isn't as friendly as he usually is. Okay? He just begins and says, Paul, an apostle, sent not from man nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers and sisters with me to the churches of Galatia. And then he, having introduced himself and the church that's writing with him, he continues on, grace and peace to you from God, our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, grace and peace is kind of their version, not just Paul's version, but a common uh, greeting in their day. It was kind of their, version, their, their equivalent of good morning. Okay? Uh, so they would say, instead of saying good morning, they'll say grace and peace. Okay? Um, and, and so Paul does that here. What's interesting is when Paul writes grace and peace, 
he, he, there's something different about what he does. Okay? Because he doesn't just leave it at grace and peace. Right? If you have your Bibles open there, I don't have very many slides. I don't have any of the text up there this morning. Um, so in verse 3, he says, grace and peace to you. And then notice what comes next. It says, from God our Father. So now you sort of have the, the grace and peace was just a general cultural sort of Roman Greek kind of greeting. Um, now it's saying from God, our Father, Jews are on board with that one. And then what's he say next? And the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. And so he takes this sort of generic greeting and turns it very much into a Christian greeting. And uh, declaring Jesus Lord is sort of, in fact, challenging those Romans who might have go along with grace and peace and, uh, and saying, oh, no, I can't call Jesus Lord. Caesar wouldn't like that very much. So he, he greets them in this way. He then reminds them of what it is that Jesus, the Lord, his Lord, and the Messiah uh, did for him. Why would he wish grace and peace in Jesus' name? Who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The part that's missing in his greeting is the next part. Normally, if you go to the other letters, there's a thanks section. I give thanks for you. I give thanks that when I was with you, I give. And so in most letters, he, he spends time giving thanks. Now, I don't think it means that he's unthankful. Right? He's taking time to write these people a letter. But he, he is... Um, eager to get to the topic that's at hand. So he sort of jumps ahead uh, to, to get to that. All right, so that's a little bit of an introduction there. We get a sense for what's happening. I want to just lay out for us today that um, we're, we're not going to get into the core of the book. Okay? In our introduction this morning, we're sort of given a little bit of a sense of what's going on, but we're not going to, to see a lot of what's, in, uh, what's going on amongst these churches in the region of Galatia. But here's what we need to know. Not every belief that we have is vital to our faith. Okay? Not every belief that we have about God, not every belief that we have about church, not every belief that we have about what it means for us to live as Christians is vital to our faith. Some of these things are opinions. Some of them are preferences. Somebody could walk into this room and go, oh, there is so much brown. I just find it depressing. I cannot go back to that church. Right? So, as a church, we go, we don't want anybody to be depressed. We're going to paint it bright yellow. Right? And then the next week, somebody comes in and they say, oh, I couldn't concentrate. The glare, just the brightness. Like, I wanted to reflect. I wanted to be somber. Like, that, that yellow, I just can't focus. 
I'm not, I can't go back there. All right. I don't know what we do as a church after that, okay? Probably go back to Brown. But that is somebody's relationship with God, somebody's worship, something about the church. And yet because of a preference about the decor, they're like, no, I'm not going to be part of that church family. (laughs) Because something just doesn't strike me right. And so there are a lot of things that sort of go into our faith and our relationship with God and with his people. And some of them are important. Some of them are just important to us. And some of them shouldn't be important at all. I have uh, probably about 10 different commentaries on the book of Galatians. Okay? Let me ask you, why do I need 10 commentaries? Shouldn't I be able to have one? Right? Shouldn't, shouldn't I have one commentary that just... You know, it tells me, what says, why do I need any commentaries? Why do we need any books about the Bible? Shouldn't we just read the Bible? And I mean, that's there. But the reason we have multiple commentaries by multiple authors is because they think multiple things. They, they make multiple applications. They differ from each other. Does that... We might say technically one of them is right and one of them is wrong, but we may not know which one it is. There's a big debate about whether the letter to Galatians was written to the north, churches in the northern part of the province, or the southern part of the province. You never even thought of that question, did you? And and so does it make a difference? Maybe, maybe not. But people disagree about where the letter was written. Most of us are going, that's just silly. It doesn't matter. I don't care. But people, that's at least two commentaries, right? <laughs> just, to, just to lay out the sides of the disagreement about which churches the letter was written to. And so there are a lot of different ideas. Why are there as many churches of Christ in Rochester as there are? Now, they all say Church of Christ, but most of us have been to some of those different churches. Some of us have been members there. We know that they're different, right? They're different, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, right? They're not all the same. Um, and, uh, and, and that's a good thing. I mean, not every difference is good, but it's good that there's differences, it's good that there's different preachers. It's good that there's different Bible class teachers. They're doing different ministries in different places in different ways to different people. And all of that is, is good as God's kingdom is expressed in different ways. But those differences mean that there isn't just one way of doing things or one application of a Bible verse. For a few, for a while, you, you might remember that at Lawson Road, we, before the pandemic, we had our Bible class before worship. Okay? 
and then the pandemic turned everything on its head, and now our Bible class is after worship. And there are some people that go, I love that. I get to worship, and then I have other things to do in the day, and I'm able to go and do them. Uh, But there are some folks that say, 9.30 in the morning? How am I ever going to get out of bed and out the door in time for that? Okay? Um, There are, you know, so there's pros and cons to each of these. Uh, We might even think about our guests. Is it better for our guests to be here at 9.30? Or is it better for our guests to be here at 10.30? And so we try and weigh this up and make these decisions. What's the best thing for us to do? And then there are some churches that say, Bible class? What's that? That's not in the Bible. You shouldn't have a Bible class on Sunday at all. And they wouldn't have anything to do with us. Some of them would say, you guys aren't even Christians because you have a Bible class. We're different, aren't we? And not every difference should be vital to our faith. Right? Not every difference should be vital to our relationship with God. Because just as we might look at the, the people that, that say it's wrong to have a Bible class on a Sunday, you can have it on a Monday through Saturday, but not on a Sunday, they, they might say that's wrong. We go, that's, that seems silly to me. Right? But then we have rules for how we like to do things or, or think things should be done. And we look at some other people and go, I can't believe they're doing it like that about some other topic. And these folks are over here and they're going, oh, Lawson Road, I can't believe they've got rules about that. How silly is that? Right? And so, so we're looking down the line and we're going, those folks are silly. But just as we do that, there's someone over here looking at Lawson Road and going, well, those folks are silly. And there'll be someone else. There's always someone else looking back and going, well, those folks, I don't know why they have that silly rule or do that silly thing. And the people doing it are doing it because they're convinced that that's what God wants them to do. Right? That that it's honoring to God. We, We usually don't just make up rules for the sake of it. I mean, some of it we might say, I've been to a church that says no coffee in the auditorium. It's got nothing to do with God. They just want people to be miserable. Um, and maybe to protect their carpet. You know, but not every rule is related to, to worship but, but when or to God. But when they are, we make these rules because of what we, we want, uh, because we want that good relationship with God. All of that because I want us to note in verses 1 through 5, this greeting Um, how Paul focuses on unity, okay? How Paul focuses on unity. I want us to look at the the terms he uses that express what he and the the church or the people that that are with him that are writing, what they and the churches who are receiving this letter, what they have in common. He begins by saying, Lord Jesus um, and God the Father, right? Um, Sent not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and by God 
the Father, who raised him from the dead. And then in verse 3, God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So three times in these five verses, he refers to God as Father. Paul's, I believe, writing from Antioch over in Syria, two churches in modern-day Turkey. And as he addresses them, as he opens his conversation, three times he talks about our Father. You see the connection there? Is that our God is our Father who is in Antioch and in Turkey, in Galatia. Okay? And so we have that in common. Regardless of the miles and the distance and the space and the time, we have the same God, and that God is our Father. What, what's the implication of that? If God's our Father, then we're His... And if we're His children, then you're my... And sister, right? And so, it, it, what does verse 2 say? It's not just me writing. It's also, I know some older translations say all the brethren. Some will say the family. Some will say the brothers and sisters that are with me. So Paul's, and I'm here and I'm at a church in this location. He doesn't actually say the location. But he says, this is where I'm at. And me and my spiritual family here, of whom God is our Father, are writing to you. And wishing you grace and peace in the name of that Father and of the Lord, right? The same Lord that we're serving, that we're under, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. And so the grace and peace that he wishes them comes from the Lord and comes from the Father God. Then he... um, In his description then of Jesus, he says, Lord Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus Messiah, who gave himself for our sins, right? Not your sins, not my sins, our sins, right? Again, connecting with them. And now Jesus, he gave himself for our sins to rescue us. Right, All of us from this present age. Uh, I, a few weeks ago, I know I talked about this idea, Jewish idea of the, the, the age, present age and the age to come. Okay? That was how they kind of divided history. And the present age is the one that's filled with what we would call the curse, that's filled with hardship, that's filled with suffering, that's filled with you know, pagan empires ruling over the Jews, but they're looking forward for the age to come where God's kingdom will be established, okay? Where, where Eden will be restored, where life as God intended it will come. And so it begins, he says, Christ died to forgive our sins, not to get us to heaven, but to rescue us from all this miserable stuff that happens in life, right? And to, to usher in the new age that is going to come, uh, that we'll both experience. And this is the will of our God and Father. Let's worship that God. Glory to God forever and ever. 
Amen. There are going to be a lot of differences between churches. Okay. But there are the, the, the importance of unity, the importance of family, the importance of serving God together um, overrides that, or it should. The, there are going to be a lot of differences within churches, right? You don't all think like me. And some of you are saying, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> you don't all think like me. I don't think like you. Right? We know there are differences, but that we can't allow those differences to create divisions, to build walls, because we have the same Father. We, we have the same Lord. We commit the sins and need the same forgiveness. We're looking forward to the age to come where God's kingdom will be expressed in fully. Th these are things that we're working out together. We're participating in the mission of Christ together. But there are some things that can't be sacrificed for unity. Okay? There are some things that can't be sacrificed for unity. And that's what the book of Galatians, the letter of Galatians, is about. Okay? But I want us to pay attention to what it is. Paul isn't worried about the color of the carpet. Paul isn't worried about whether... You know, Bible classes before or after. There's a lot of things that Paul isn't worried about. But we find the answer in verse, uh, where are we? Verse 6, right? I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. It's not that you're speaking Greek instead of Hebrew or Aramaic. It's not that your Bible is in Latin instead of in Hebrew. It's not any number of things, but he says you are turning to a different gospel. And in turning to a different gospel, what are they giving up? They're giving up, they're deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ. They're giving up God. Giving up the gospel is the same as giving up God. This is, you know, in part why we spent uh, just a few weeks back or, or over the summer, went through this sermon series of what is the gospel, reminding ourselves of the story. Because what we have in the gospels, we have the core of our faith. Right? And we start chipping away from that. We start saying Jesus is somebody other than who he said he is. We say God is someone other than who he said he is. We start saying that God didn't do what he said that he did. We start saying that the things God says are not important. We, we, we start chipping away at that. And it turns out that we end up with a different gospel. And Paul says if you end up with a different gospel, remember gospel means good news, you end up with something that you think is good news, he says in verse 7, he says only it's not good news at all. <laughs> it's not good news at all. And the problem here is that evidently some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. So Paul has left these churches and someone else has arrived. And what they're doing 
What they're teaching is chipping away at the gospel that Paul had shared in order for these people to become Christians. And it's why Paul writes the letter. So again, the warning just is that we need to be careful that we don't make everything about the gospel. The gospel is pretty well defined. And so we need to be careful that we don't put too much baggage on it, that we don't hang too many things off the cross except Jesus. And so I want to give you some background to this letter because I think it's important as we're going to keep moving through. Paul's first missionary journey with Barnabas. It took him through a part of southern Turkey that contained the Roman province of Galatia. So that's it there in the, in the red. Um, it may extend a little further north and a little further south. Um, it's a fairly big region. It's pretty mountainous through there. And that's why you could see, you know, is it people might wonder, is it to the north or is it to the south? It'd be kind of like if I wrote a letter to a church in Georgia and then came to New York and said, hey guys, I wrote to you all. You're like, no, you didn't write to us. I'm like, yeah, I sent it to the church in America. Um, Just because I went to a church in Georgia doesn't mean anybody up here was aware of it. And so it's a little bit like that, you know, particularly with their travel uh, restrictions at the, at the time. If you're, just to give you a little bit of context, Paul was from a, the town, city of Tarsus, which is just about over here. So fairly close regionally in terms of where he grew up, but there was quite a big mountain range in between. So Paul has gone on this missionary journey with Barnabas, and they've gone to, uh, to they, they traveled to the southern part here, and uh, they made, planted some churches there. And we can read about that. In fact, in our growth groups, we'll read about that in Acts chapter 13 and 14. Now, at this point in time, Turkey is not a unified country. There is no country of Turkey. Uh, In the Old Testament times, there was a powerful empire that maybe you've heard referenced. Uh, It was the Hittites. Okay, so the Hittites were sort of based mostly on the uh, western and eastern end of, of Turkey there. And so there was the Hittite Empire. Eventually that was followed by the Persian Empire that swept in and took control. And then the the Greeks swept back the other way and they took control. And then the Romans came from further to the west and took control of the Greeks and again of Turkey. And that is where uh, we now, over centuries, but that is now where we find Paul. And so Turkey, what is the culture of Turkey? Right? or of this region. They, sometimes it's called Asia. Um, Galatia is really just what the Romans called it. It had other names before that. And so, um, if you were going to do mission work here, what would you prepare for? Are you going to pre- prepare for people whose who's, uh, tribal families have lived there for centuries? Are you going to prepare for people who were resettled by the, the Persians? Are you going to learn to speak Greek because the, the Greek influence was there just a hundred years or so ago? Or are you going to expect to run into Roman, Roman culture and armies and all of their 
gods and, and uh, bureaucracy that go with it. There's a lot to think about as you go up into this part of, um, of the world. Now, if you were to come over here, you're only really going to find the Greek culture and some Roman, okay? But this is Greece, so you're going to find the Greece. You come over here, this is Italy, you're going to find the Roman culture, right? There's no question. But here in central Turkey, you're going to find all sorts of different cultures and people that you're going to run into. There will be traditional religion going back perhaps thousands of years, as well as the latest and greatest uh, Roman temples and deities who have been introduced. So it's, it's very multi-ethnic. A lot of people are resettled there over time. Rome has founded some new cities there, just built them from scratch. There's going to be a lot of pagan gods. One of the things we've seen in our Wednesday night class with the men is just how prominent the temples are to the pagan deities. You walk into a city, you are going, the biggest building in that city is very likely to be the temple to whatever the god is, to whatever the main god is. There'll be other smaller temples to the smaller gods as well. And so we, um, th that's going to be very striking as you travel through this part of the, the country. A lot of gods, a lot of temples. There's going to be Jews that have been resettled here. Okay? And so there are Jewish communities. The Romans moved people around and, 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 and put them in place. Um, by having lots of smaller communities, it was a little safer for the Romans, right? It was less likely to be an uprising than by having everybody in the, in the same place. Um, amongst the, the temples that... Uh, oh, well, this is... Let me go with this one first. Amongst the temples that you would have found there, this is... Uh, in Antioch in Turkey or Pisidian Antioch and uh, this is a this big mound here is would have held a statue of Caesar Augustus where people would go to sort of worship and to praise him because he built this particular city of Pisidian Antioch he founded it he was responsible for it but look not just how big the temple is the the shrine itself look at this big sort of area that is set aside for it. And there would have been all columns around here and uh, made it pretty impressive. So it's a lot of space that's dedicated to this. So you walk into this city, boom, there's Caesar Augustus. You live in that city and you don't honor Caesar Augustus. They're like, Caesar Augustus built this town. He can come and knock down this town. You better come and you better worship <laughs> Caesar Augustus with the rest of us in case he changes his mind. Um, but there was also, oops, go this way, there was also a Jewish community. This is a church, uh, I think it's called like actually the Church of St. Paul. So it would have been written, built much later than Paul, you know, a long time later. Uh, so it wouldn't have coexisted with the shrine of Augustus. Um, but it's a pretty big building. And it's believed that, that the reason it's there is because Paul, the Catholics or whichever who have organization came along and built it. They said, hey, this is where Paul preached. We'll build a church and we'll name it after him. Um, but somewhere in here, I don't know exactly where, they've dug down and they found ruins of a synagogue. So the church was sort of built on top of the synagogue. But the synagogue is where Paul would have spoken. And, and the fact that there's a synagogue there tells us that there was a Jewish community there. Right? So what was the culture like? What was the, 
it like for the people? Well, yeah, you have a shrine to Augustus in one place. You also have a, a Jewish synagogue and then many centuries later, a, a church. So since this was Paul's first missionary journey, it's likely that none of the people that he met had ever even heard of Jesus before. That's not a guarantee, but if they'd heard rumors or heard little bits and pieces, um, they, they hadn't heard a lot. Certainly the pagans, the Gentiles who lived there, they knew the Jews. They were familiar with the God of the Jews who wouldn't let the Jews come and worship at their temples. But they didn't know Jesus. And so when Paul comes into the city, his entire trip is going to take 12 to 18 months, thereabouts. How much teaching could he do in the six cities that he visits in that time? Okay. So think, think for yourself, right? You've never heard of Jesus. You meet someone. They spend two months talking to you about Jesus. And you go, wow, this is impressive. I need to dedicate my life to him. I'm going to become a follower of this person. I'm going to worship this Jewish God. And then two months after you meet the person, he moves, moves on. Tell me, a year later, how strong's your faith? How strong's your faith? And, and so that's kind of the situation that these churches find themselves in. What would Paul teach them, do you think, in those two months? How much time do you think he would spend talking about Bible classes? How much time do you think he would spend talking about whatever the latest hot topic is in the churches these days? What do you think he talked about? I'm guessing Jesus. <laughs> like, I want you to know Jesus really well. And I've got lots of stories to tell you right? in the whatever time he had. What do you think their connection was to other churches, to other Christian communities when he left? You think they felt isolated? I don't know. Maybe it's 20 people. Maybe it's 50 people. Maybe it's six. Right? Now, Usually he traveled along a road and went to different cities. So maybe they got together for an area-wide church service occasionally. But I expect they would have felt kind of out on a limb. Certainly they're a long way from Jerusalem where Jesus lived and did so much stuff. A long way from Galilee. A long way from the church in Antioch that sent Paul and Barnabas on this missionary journey together. How's that going to help their faith in the months ahead? And so I think what Paul is doing in, in this letter is he, he, he makes this connection. He talks about our Father God. He talks about our sins. He talks about Jesus who died for us. Right? The first thing he's doing is saying, I know I left you guys. Right? I know I wasn't there very long. I, I, I know you, you changed your life and, and you've been through a lot of stuff. 
and, and I'm aware of that, but we're in this together. Even though I haven't seen you, even though I'm back here, whatever you're going through, I care about you because we're together. We're following Jesus together. And so he reminds them of the shared story that they're part of. The story that, that Paul and his church share with those churches. And, and he reminds them of the shared hope that they have. That, that yes, we're here, we're in a bigger church, we're, we're in a bigger city perhaps, but we, we, we share this hope for the future that you have. We all have a common hope. And it's on the basis of this connection It's on the basis of the relationship. It's on the basis of having the same father that now Paul is able to strongly oppose what is being taught in those churches. He says, who are these people coming in? Because I don't know them. I don't know them. Paul isn't strongly opposed to everything. In fact, it's really interesting that over in Galatians uh, in chapter 6, in verse 1, he's actually here talking about sin. And he says, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. You're caught in sin, restore that person gently. Now look how Paul addresses the people who are coming in, who are teaching this other gospel. He says... In verse 8, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we've already said now, I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than the one that you have already accepted, let them be under God's curse. Paul isn't cursing them. He's saying let them be under God's curse. If you see someone sinning, Restore that person gently. If you see someone preaching a false doctrine, and not doctrine, gospel, let them be under God's curse. You see the difference there? The the difference of scale that exists? And so the thing I want us to take away from today is that there is a scale of things that we can disagree about. Some of them can be ignored. Some of them, even sinful things, can be restored gently and should be restored gently. And some things are so at the core of our faith that they just need to be opposed. Using whatever language, extreme language, is appropriate is going to get people's attention to to get back to, to God and to what is right. And so the question I think we have to ask ourselves is what's at our core? What's at our core? What is in our gospel? What are the things that we'll stand up and defend adamantly that we can't tolerate? And what are the things that perhaps are important but they're out at their core? and need to be discussed gently? What are the things that are preferences and opinions that we can just let slide? 
because it can't all be gospel. What is your gospel?